0: You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host Rochelle. Today we will be discussing Unsolved Mysteries Season 1, Episode 1. That's right, we're going back to the start. Hello, hello, and welcome to Mysteries Still Unsolved. If you didn't catch the opener today, we are going to be doing a major throwback, and we're going all the way back to Season 1, Episode 1 of Unsolved Mysteries with my favorite, my love, my boo, Mr. Robert Stack i absolutely love robert stack i always thought of him as like a cool grandpa type like a grandpa that i could really like talk about true crime with but my husband is absolutely terrified of him and the music my husband gets so freaked out by the original theme song which makes me laugh out loud because we seriously could not be more opposite in that regard he hears the music and he wants to like run out of the room I hear the music and my heart skips a beat and I get butterflies in my stomach. Differences, opposites attract. Anyway, thank you guys for joining me today. We had a super long thread on our case last week on Instagram and that seriously made me so happy. I love talking to you guys and learning about your thoughts and ideas about the cases that we discuss I know that a lot of you had heard about Lindsay Buziak before, so it was so fun to have all of our research kind of like collide, and we were able to have some really awesome discussions with everybody's wealth of knowledge just all in one place. And if you're feeling left out, well, honestly... I wouldn't blame you. There is a simple solution to your conundrum. Follow us on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved. This way, you'll never miss a single episode and you can come hang throughout the week. We miss you and we need your ideas. So stop withholding yourself from us. It's greedy. Also, thanks so much for commenting, sharing, following. It really is so helpful in spreading the word about the podcast. I have some loyal followers who share with their friends and family on Instagram and Facebook every Tuesday. And for that, I am seriously so incredibly grateful. Some of you even send me private messages of encouragement and praise, and I seriously don't know what I did to deserve you. And I don't think I could do it without you. You guys are the best. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, there are no updates to any of the cases that we have discussed thus far, but my hope is that one day we will not only have an update on one of these cases, but that someone will be apprehended and brought to justice. Seriously, that's the dream, right? Because I just don't want to talk about these cases. I mean, the reason that I, the reason that we talk about this stuff is to shine a spotlight on the victims so that they will stay fresh in people's minds and that one day their case will be solved and they and their families can be at peace. That being said, we are going to delve right on into the cases today, and yes, you did hear me correctly, cases. Old school Unsolved Mysteries went through three to four unsolved cases every episode, and while they had to skim through some of them to get everything into like a 30-minute episode, girl, we don't have to do that, we can spend time on each case, and I've done a buttload of research on each and every one, and I'm so excited to share it with you and get your thoughts. So, without further ado, let's get started, shall we? Our first case is the death of Shannon Davis. This case brings us to a farm in Pittsford in Hillsdale County, Michigan. On July 23rd, 1980, newlyweds Dave and Shannon Davis decided to go on what I can only imagine he concocted to be a romantic sunset horseback ride throughout their property. And when I say Dave and Shannon were newlyweds... They were newlyweds. In one of the articles that I read, it said that they had only known each other for 18 weeks and had been married for just seven. And they say we move fast here in good old Utah. Holy cow, that's quick. So I guess Shannon was not an experienced writer, but she was willing to learn because she knew how much her new husband enjoyed it. However, only an hour later, Shannon was dead. Initially, it was believed that Shannon had fallen off of her horse and had hit her head on a rock, and that is what had caused her death. However, this story began to unravel shortly after Shannon's parents met Dave at the hospital. The husband. Because it's always the husband, people. Don't get married. (laughs) Just kidding. Now Shannon's parents actually really liked Dave, like almost a little bit too much if we're being honest. Shannon's mom thought that the two were a match made in heaven. She thought he was pretty neat. If you got that reference, give me a shout because we just became instant best friends. Shannon's dad often bragged to his buddies that Shannon had snagged herself a real man's man. Dave Davis had a farm, like kind of like a dude ranch because I think that he only had horses. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, lumberjacking, anything outdoors. But upon learning about Shannon's death at the hospital, her parents begged and pleaded with Dave to allow them to take Shannon's body back with them to Toledo. But Dave had other ideas. Oh, sorry. What time is it? Oh, I'm just checking on my phone. Uh... Yep, that's what I thought. TikTok, it's sketch o'clock. Dave was adamant that he and Shannon had previously discussed that Shannon wished to be cremated. And this took her parents by surprise because they themselves were against cremation, but they had also remembered Shannon expressing to them that she would never want to be cremated either. But Dave wouldn't let up about it, so much so that Shannon's Father had to go before a judge and reverse Dave's decision, temporarily suspending Dave's spousal rights. Three days after Shannon's death, a funeral was held in Toledo, where Shannon's body, so no cremation had happened, was put to rest. Dave apparently seemed pretty unbothered by the whole situation and didn't have any emotions whatsoever. It was particularly worrisome to Shannon's mother when she overheard Dave telling her husband that he did not have any any insurance policies taken out in Shannon's name, when she knew for a fact that that wasn't true. Apparently, the day after Shannon's honeymoon, Shannon had disclosed to her mother that Dave had not only taken one life insurance policy out, but six life insurance policies in her name, amounting to $330,000, which would equate to almost $1 million in 1980 money. And that, folks, is what the French call le red flag. So obviously this raised a lot of concerns to Shannon's mom about what, about what else Dave was lying about. And it appears that Dave's pants were in a constant state of being ablaze because he was a big time liar, liar. Dave was certainly no stranger to telling tall tales, especially if he could make a quick buck in doing so. Dave had apparently been involved in insurance frauds for years. He had burned down his own barn to claim the insurance money. He often bragged about an injury that he had gotten in the military, but when talking to Dave's parents at the funeral, they told Shannon's parents that Dave had never been in the service, which seems like a stupid thing to lie about because you can easily find it out. But I mean, 1980s, maybe you couldn't find it out that easily. I don't know. I feel like you'd be whoever you wanted to be in the 1980s. Shannon's dad said that with all the insurance scams that Dave had been involved in that it only made sense that he'd really want to push the limit to get the most money possible even if that meant murdering someone. Shannon's parents and investigators had no doubt in their minds that Dave's sole purpose in marrying Shannon was to just kill her and get the insurance money. It was long premeditated but there was only one problem standing in their way. How were they going to prove it? During the investigation, Dave moved to Florida with a girlfriend. Le red flag numero dos. He claims that the woman wasn't really his girlfriend. She was just a woman who was interested in him who invited herself along. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Shannon's parents fought for their daughter's body to be exhumed and for another autopsy to be performed. It finally happened and a toxicology report found that there was a large amount of a chemical compound, but they didn't know which one. Remember, this was 1980. They didn't have the technology that we have today. The toxicologists at the time said that there were 200,000 possible medicines or chemicals that it could be, and they had to test each one individually it would help them if they could narrow it down so that it wouldn't take like months or years to find out. This is when the toxicologist working on the case was approached by a detective who informed him that Dave owned a dirt farm with horses. And if you're wondering what a dirt farm is, because what do you do? Like farm dirt? No, it's just a farm with no hired help. So Dave was doing all the work on his own. Was it possible that Dave had used a medicine for horses to subdue his new bride? Investigators visited several vets who had associated with Dave, and a few of them mentioned the name of a horse tranquilizer that Dave had purchased from them time and time over the years. The investigator passed on the name of the tranquilizer to the toxicologist, and wouldn't you know, the toxicologist tested it, and it was a perfect match. Put a pin on that, though. Now, they just had to prove that it had, in fact, been injected into Shannon before her death. So, yet another exclamation was ordered. All the coroner had to do was look for an injection site and bingo. They found not only one site, but two. One in Shannon's shoulder and one in her wrist. Now, investigators had something to go on. They speculated that Dave lured Shannon out with the promise of a romantic horse ride Then once they were out of sight, he attacked Shannon, pulling her off of her horse and onto the ground, and in the struggle, he managed to inject her twice with horse tranquilizer. With her now being fully incapacitated, he was able to stage a head injury to look like she had fallen from her horse and hit her head on a rock. It almost worked. If it hadn't been for those meddling, suspicious parents, dedicated officers, and a determined toxicologist... Did you get that Scooby-Doo reference? I was pretty proud of myself. So I just want to make sure that I get credit where credit is due. <laughs> now they had their proof, but where was Dave Davis? He had disappeared without a trace. The FBI put them on his their most wanted list. So the episode makes it seem like Unsolved Mysteries released this episode and bam, Dave Davis was found. But the woman who was currently living in American Samoa who provided the tip that led to Dave Davis arrests actually saw a rerun of this episode one night an entire decade after it was originally released. She immediately recognized his dumb little stupid face. She contacted the show and the FBI went to go check it out. It was him after all of these years. Davis was apprehended in his home with, Hold on to your butts. His new 20-year-old bride. You in danger, girl. If you see footage of her shortly after he is arrested, she looks pissed. And at first, I thought it was because she had been duped and she was pissed about that. But this girl had clearly been brainwashed by Dave. Because during an interview, she was quoted as saying, quote, I don't think he's capable of doing that. And even if he did, he's a different person now. There's no point in putting him in jail. It isn't going to bring that woman back to life. Why won't they just let him out? (sighs) Girl, you just dodged a huge bullet or a needle because apparently Dave likes to use syringes. They have video footage of Dave being paraded around after being arrested and he is smiling like a creep and a half. I think he is just so arrogant that he truly believed that he was going to get away with it. Reporters can be heard asking him, did you kill your wife? Did you kill your wife? And he repeatedly claims that he didn't have anything to do with it. He just so thinks he's going to walk away from this, but think again, Dave Davis. After only two hours of deliberation, a jury finds him guilty in Shannon's death and sentences him to life in prison without parole. There is hope in the world after all. They have footage of the sentencing, and I'm so happy to see Shannon's parents were in attendance. So often, we know that these cases never get solved, and the family doesn't get to see justice happen. Shannon's mother is interviewed after sentencing, and you can hear her say, When he killed Shannon, he gave us life sentences. Now he gets the death penalty. And while Dave Davis didn't get the death penalty in its official use of the phrase, he did die in prison while serving 25 years before dying to complications of a muscular degenerative disease. Okay, but before we wrap up with Dave Davis, remember when we were talking about the toxicologist and I told you to put a pin in that exact match thing that he said? Well, Wouldn't you know that Dave Davis almost got away with murdering Shannon yet again because of the flippant use of that phrase? Apparently on the witness stand, the toxicologist said that the two drugs were a 100% match. Later, Dave's lawyers filed an appeal because according to their investigation, it was just a 98% match. That's a difference of 2%, guys. Dave was granted a new trial because of this 2% and people were getting super worried that he was going to get away, but he was sentenced with a life sentence again. So there is hope in the world for us all. Okay, what a roller coaster ride that was. The outcome of this case only reiterates to me how important it is to keep a spotlight on these unsolved crimes. I so appreciate Unsolved Mysteries and other true crime shows and podcasts that keep these stories alive and in the public eye and ear. Wink wink. Remember, Dave Davis was turned in by just an acquaintance that happened to be watching an Unsolved Mysteries one night. Because of her bravery, because of her tenacity, a whole family has somewhat of a resolution and Davis was finally apprehended and brought to justice. Make sure that you keep your eyes and ears open because you just never know if that guy behind the counter of a gas station or a customer behind you in line or God forbid the new neighbor who moves in across the street is the next person Unsolved Mysteries needs help locating. Now we move on to our next case, the case of Aileen Conway. In April 1986, at around 1040, one morning, a farmer was working in his fields in Lawton, Oklahoma, when he witnessed a chimney of smoke billowing up into the sky. He immediately called law enforcement, and within 20 minutes, they were on the scene. And what a scene it was to come upon. A sedan appeared to have crashed into a guardrail of a bridge. It was now completely ablaze. The flames were so large and so hot that officers had a hard time getting anywhere near it. They could see that a person was inside, but they just could not get to them. And also, they knew that the person inside didn't have much of a chance. After the fire was extinguished, they were able to see just how much damage the car had endured. Apparently, the flames from the fire were so hot that the side of the car had melted and melded through the guardrail itself. It appeared that the car had gone into the guardrail At 60 miles per hour. Like it didn't even look like someone had tried to slow down at all before hitting the guardrail. Upon further inspection of the car, the car was found to belong to Pat Conway. After reaching out to him, it was determined that the person found inside the car was his beloved wife, Aileen. Aileen and Pat had been married for 33 years and she was a mother to seven children. When Pat finally made his way home hours after his wife's death, he picked up on some very unusual things. For starters, their patio doors were completely opened and appeared to have been that way pretty much the whole day. The hose was on outside as it appeared someone had been filling up the pool. A bath had been drawn, the phone in the bathroom was left off of its hook, and an iron had been left on. But that wasn't all. Aileen's purse with her glasses and driver's license were also at the home. This was very unusual to Pat, and so he immediately called the police. You see, the police had deemed Aileen's death an accident, and Pat wanted this case reopened after all of these details had come to light. He was having a hard time believing that this was just a car crash. For starters, Aileen had no reason to be in the area where she was. She crashed 15 miles from their home, but in an area that the two had never been to. Police attempted to assure Pat that it really was just an accident, but Pat could not be swayed. He decided to hire his own private investigator to help. He hired Ray Anderson. Ray admits that when he got the call from Pat, even he thought that this was a case of a husband who couldn't let the death of his wife go. But, after coming to the house and learning of all of the weird things, even he couldn't brush those feelings aside. They decided to go to the scene of the crash together, to which I ask, why didn't they do this earlier? It's like, 200 feet from the crash site, they find a church bulletin, like a church flyer program from the Sunday before the crash, Along the side of the road, and it's completely unscorched. Now, this doesn't seem too crazy at first, but Pat is adamant that Aileen never drove with the windows down. She loved using the air conditioning. He said that there's just no way that it could have flown out if Aileen had been the one that was driving. Now, as much as I feel bad that Pat is really trying to get us to think this means something, I really just think it's a red herring to the case and detracts from some much bigger findings that they discover. However, with all the circumstantial evidence that Ray and Pat are able to gather, the Lawton Police Department and the coroner agree to change the cause of Aileen's death from accident to unexplained. An arson expert is brought in on the case for a second opinion, and he believes that there is just way too much fire for a simple car accident. He 100%, careful of those numbers, buddy, believes that the an accelerant was used to create the flames and sustain the fire for such a long time. He also notes in his report that the gas cap has been removed and cannot be found. He says that in all of his cases where a car was purposefully set on fire, the gas cap has been removed. This only perpetuates his belief that this was no ordinary car accident. This fire was intentionally set. He believes that there are many reasons why this would be plausible. For example, he believes that Aileen was dead before the car crash. He thinks that perhaps someone set the car on fire to destroy evidence, such as fingerprints or bodily fluids, hair, or fibers, or to just seriously throw off the Emmy's findings. If you're a murderer, try not to take notes right now, but apparently a fire is the best way to destroy evidence, especially since firefighters usually come out and fight the fire with water only further damaging any evidence so yeah now you know in fact they go one step further and get a sample of the same make model and year of Alien's car and they put it against tests at a lab one sample they douse with gasoline the other they leave it as it is When they take a blowtorch to the one not soaked in gasoline and then stop the blowtorch, the fire does linger linger for a little bit, but it does go out. This is because the make, model, and year of the car that Eileen was driving had flame-retardant seats. But the one that has been doused in gasoline, however, continues to burn and the flames get larger and larger. So I think at this point, it's obvious that this was not just a car accident. There was definitely something more sinister at play here. But why and who? There are a few theories rolling around out there in the ether. So we're going to talk about a few of them. Theory number one is that Aileen was at home when she was lured out of her home by someone that she knew. People think this because there were no signs of foul play at the home, like kicked over furniture, etc. So they think whatever happened to Aileen, she initially left willingly, but then that person killed her and staged the accident. Theory number two is that Aileen was at home, minding her own business, multitasking like a boss because she's a mom of seven kids. And they're actually all at school and she can get crap done. When she was either attacked by one of the many contractors that were coming in and out of their home. Apparently, Pat and Aileen were doing a lot of renovations at the time. Or a burglar came in thinking that no one was home and was surprised when they ran into her. People think this because, well, if it's the contractor theory, they think maybe someone walked in on her while she was preparing for a bath. And then they made a move on her to which she rejected and then they thought i have to kill her so she doesn't tell anyone or if it was a burglar they made a crappy decision to kidnap and murder her so that she couldn't give a description to the police this may explain why the phone in the bathroom was off the hook because she was possibly attempting to call for help when she was overtaken many people don't like this theory because they think that aileen would have caused more of a ruckus and a mess on her way out but we can't rule out that the person who murdered her didn't coax her out with a weapon to get her to comply quietly with their demands. Theory number three is that Aileen faked her own death, which I just find absurd because that would imply that Aileen found someone who was the same build weight and height as her and murdered them to start a new life. Yeah, I'm raising the BS flag to that one because there are simpler ways to skip town, especially in the 1980s. Theory number four is that Pat, her husband, is somehow involved. And while husbands are often the person behind their wives' deaths, almost like all the time, this is one case where I truly don't think that's so. The death had been ruled an accident. If Pat had committed the murder, he was home free. Why in hell would he push so hard for the case to be reopened? Why would he pay his own money to, hi- to hire a private investigator? Why would he continue to fight for Aileen's name to be in the spotlight until his dying breath? And I should mention that Pat Conway is now deceased. He died without ever getting justice for his sweetheart and without ever knowing what happened to her. I like to think that he's up in heaven with her now and now he knows the whole story. But don't worry. There is a Facebook group currently in use called Who Killed Aileen Conway? It is run by Joseph Conway, Pat and Eileen's grandson, who continues to fight for justice. And also after Eileen's death, like years after, Pat remarried and his sweet wife continues to fight for justice for Eileen. also. She says that she is continuing Pat's fight for justice because it was just so important to him and she fights in his memory. If you have any information regarding this case, please feel free to go to unsolved.com and place an anonymous tip. Um, we're now going to be discussing the mysterious disappearance of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. In 1976, Emory Kolb, a famous Grand Canyon frontiersman and a photographer, passed away at his home near the Colorado River. Upon his death, his grandson went to go through the, his belongings and organize them. When he went into the boathouse, he noticed a beautiful canoe, and he wanted a closer look at it. Upon climbing up to retrieve it, he made a gruesome discovery. Human remains and a skull. He, of course, obviously called police and more than likely rethought his love of everything canoe related. Police had no idea who the remains belonged to, but they did remember that in 1928, two explorers went missing and wondered if the two instances could be at all related. Glenn and Bessie Hyde were newlyweds, Glenn was 28 and Bessie was 22. For their honeymoon, Glenn had an unromantic and horrifying request. He wanted to break the record for traveling down the Colorado River from Green River, Utah to California. One thing you need to know about Glenn is that he was infatuated by the idea of becoming famous. It's literally all he ever wanted and Glenn had decided that this was the best way to attain fame and glory. He wanted to accomplish this journey in the fastest time, in a homemade boat, and with no life jackets. To top it off, if the journey was to be successful, and if Bessie didn't die, Bessie would be the first woman ever to journey down the river successfully, just icing on the cake in Glenn's eyes. Bessie must have had a much more adventurous spirit than I do, or maybe she was doing that thing, You know, that thing where we wives like actually care about being nice to our husbands. (laughs) It's been a few years since that was my main priority. I think Brian would admit those were the days. I'd be like, no, for our honeymoon, you can take me to Paris. Thank you. Anyway, Bessie agrees to this outrageously dangerous request. Glenn spent some time building the boat and they drove down to Green River, Utah. When they were about to launch their homemade boat, sponsored by Hobby Lobby, they came across another man who was an experienced Grand Canyon guide. After that guy learned about their plans through talking with him, he remarked to another man after they launched their boat and were already floating down the river that the boat looked like a coffin, both metaphorically and in actuality. Yikes. Bessie and Glenn traveled for many days, 26 to be exact, and they were making good timing. They decided to stop and rest for the night at a friend's home, Emery Kolb. Emery had apparently successfully sailed down the Colorado River twice, so he was considered an expert. It's rumored that Bessie confided in Emery that she no longer wanted to continue this journey. I don't blame her. The further along the river they went, the more dangerous the rapids were getting, and Bessie wasn't feeling safe. Emery tried to speak on her behalf to Glenn and told Glenn that he just didn't feel good about them going and that he thought that maybe he, they should stay with him until the river was more calm. The next part of the journey was incredibly treacherous. And even now to this day, that section of the river is rated an eight or nine in difficulty and it has to be traveled with a guide's help. You cannot do it by yourself. But Glenn was determined and would not listen to reason. He refused to pay Emery any mind. When Emery saw that he wasn't going to change Glenn's mind, he pleaded with him to at least take two of my life jackets, but Glenn refused those as well. Bessie and Glenn left Emory Colve's on less than good terms. A few weeks later, Glenn and Bessie's boat was found sailing down the river without them inside. I learned in an article that the 232 mile mark has the most dangerous rapids of the entire journey, so this might have been what messed them up right? Emery Kolb being familiar with the area was called upon by law enforcement to assist in figuring out what might have happened to them. Emery Kolb noted that when he saw the boat, it actually did not seem to be damaged in any shape or form. The food and the equipment were all intact. There were no signs of a capsize because there were papers and documents and even Bessie's diary that appeared to have no water damage whatsoever. There was just a perfectly good Hobby lobby boat and no people. So what happened to them? Keeping that in mind, we revisit the skeleton found in Emory Kolb's boathouse. Could the boat accident have been a ruse orchestrated by Emery to cover up the murder he had committed against his friend Glenn? Well, anthropologist Dr. Walter Berkby says absolutely not. He has actually had the opportunity to study the bones, and it is in his professional opinion that the skeleton could not possibly be that of Glenn Hyde. For starters, the bones are that of a 22-year-old male, and Glenn was almost 30. He also superimposed an image of Glenn Hyde on top of the skull found in the boathouse and found many irregularities. For starters, the skull is a different size and shape than Glenn's head and shape. The eye sockets do not match up. The cheekbones are wider, and the shape of the chin is all wrong. The skull has a very square jaw, but Glenn's is much more rounded. Skulls don't change. You get the skull you get. You can't change where your eyes are on your head. And this was in 1928, so I don't think anybody got a jaw resculpting. Dr. Birkby says he's heard some pretty wild theories over the years. He's heard that perhaps Emery Kolb killed Glenn to have Bessie all to himself, perhaps keeping her as a prisoner until he was ready to dispose of her too, and he finds these claims to be absolutely preposterous. He says that it's more likely that during one of Emery's adventures and hikes around his home, he came upon the body or remains of a 22-year-old male who had committed suicide and brought him home. Then, Dr. Birkby believes Kolb placed this human body in his boathouse and, you know, just forgot about him. To which I said, is this the theory you said was more likely? That's crazy. I don't know how into nature you are in the circle of life. You better believe I'm not going to put a body in my boathouse and then forget about it for four decades. That doesn't seem like a good explanation to me, but that's the only one that we get from the episode. So I guess that's what we get. There are also rumors that Bessie could have lived. In 1971, someone claims to have seen her. Apparently, this guy was on a Colorado River trip and there was this experienced woman who he claimed seemed more experienced than the guide that he hired. One night, the guide took them to the exact location of where Glenn and Bessie Hyde's boat was discovered and they decided to make camp there. At the fire, he told the group the story of Glenn and Bessie. He ended his tale by saying, and no one knows what became of them. And the woman who hadn't said much the entire trip said, that's not true. I know exactly what happened. A few people shifted uncomfortably in their seats and asked, how? And she replied, well, because I'm Bessie. She went on to tell the group that a day after they had left Emery Kolb's, Bessie complained to Glenn that she did not want to continue. She wanted to go back to Emery's because the water was just getting too rough. Well, apparently the river wasn't the only thing getting rough because the woman claims Glenn got so angry with her that he struck her and left her on shore and returned to the boat to continue his journey without her. She became so enraged with Glenn that she grabbed a knife and stabbed him. Then she threw him into the raging water, pushed the boat out, and walked away to start a new life. As crazy as the story seems, the witnesses all say that she seemed so convincing. Later on, after the expedition was over and all of the people had returned home, the man contacted the guide to get her name and number. The man called the woman, claiming to be Bessie, and asked her, "'Was all that you told us at the campfire true? Are you really, Bessie Hyde?' The woman not only recanted the story, she tried to act as if she had never even told them the story. She made the man seem like he was crazy." Another woman named Georgie White claimed to be Bessie Hyde until her death at age 81. After her death, family came out to, again, clean out the home. And in her lingerie drawer, which, can we just stop for a minute to acknowledge the fact that this 81-year-old woman has a lingerie drawer? Get it, Georgie. They found a copy of Glenn and Bessie's marriage certificate and a pistol. The same pistol used to inflict the gunshot wound in the unknown skeleton. Hmm. Now, while some people think that this points to Georgie White really being Bessie Hyde, apparently Bessie's birth name on her birth certificate was Georgie after all, Georgie White's close family and friends believe that this was just a hoax orchestrated by Georgie herself before her death to take everyone on one last wild ride. Her friends say it's just the sort of thing that Georgie would do. So, what happened to Glenn and Bessie Hyde? And if that skeleton doesn't belong to Glenn then who does it belong to and why did Emery store it in his boathouse for 40 years? All right, I saved a doozy for last. Oh my gosh, this one is insane. The husband in the story reminds me so much of Rob Andres in the Patrice Andres case, and I'm not the only one to make this connection. Tons of unsolved mystery junkies made the connection as well, and you can read all about it on a bunch of Reddit threads if you feel so inclined. I think after I tell you a little bit more about Jewel, you will definitely see why. Plus, I'll post a picture of this guy, and he has the same beady little eyes as Rob. Okay, so this is the case of Dorothy Dottie Kaler. Dorothy Kaler had been in an abusive relationship with her husband Jewel for quite some time. Jewel apparently cheated on Dottie all the time, and everybody knew about it. Not only was their relationship... Rocky? They hadn't really met on good solid ground either. Apparently, Jewel was actually married and had a one year old daughter when he began dating Dottie. He went so far to protect his true identity that for the first seven months of their relationship, Dottie thought his name was Jim Rupp. But by the time she learned the truth about who he was and the fact that he was a husband and father, it was too late. She had already fallen in love with him. After she pled with him to end his marriage, Jewel did. And the fairy tale barely even happened because I swear that they always hated each other. Dotty resented Jewel because he was always on the road for work and because of his blatant infidelity. He was an entomologist, which is a person who studies insects, and an aerial photographer. Jewel resented Dottie for, well, just about everything, especially, and for the most part, her very existence. Jewel just seems so bored and tired of talking about her throughout this entire Unsolved Mysteries interview. He is like so annoyed that people are still talking about Dottie and especially talking to him about Dottie. He could not be more over it. Throughout the whole interview, he just reminds me of a teenage girl who is tired of chit-chatting with her overbearing mom. Jewel claims that the day Dottie went missing, he took her to the BART station in the Bay Area, which is like their public transportation. They're like kind of like a train, but not really. And she was supposed to go on a trip with a friend and then he was going to pick her up a few days later. This was actually a real hardship for Dottie and it's surprising that she would even want to do this at all because Dottie was agoraphobic. She was terrified of leaving her home. Social and public situations made her feel completely uneasy and gave her a lot of anxiety. As mentioned earlier, Dottie was living in a prison, not only due to her agoraphobia, but also because Jewel was incredibly physically abusive. There is an instance on Thanksgiving 1981 that apparently a checkbook went missing, and Jewel accused Dottie of hiding it or stealing it, and he began to physically assault her. In self-defense, Dottie grabbed a pair of scissors and yelled, if you hit me again, I'm going to kill you. Jewel says he grabbed a typewriter table and hit her over the head with it. And he says it so nonchalantly too, like, Oh, yeah, I grabbed a table and hit her over the head with it. It was just self-defense. And then he shrugs his shoulders like a 15-year-old kid. Police were called by neighbors about the domestic dispute because it was Thanksgiving and everybody and their mom heard about it. But by the time police arrived, Dottie was gone because she had driven herself to the hospital to get 17 stitches. Dottie spent the night at a battered women's shelter. Police asked her if she wanted to press charges, but she didn't, and she returned home to Jewel. Jewel and Dottie had talked about divorce for years, but nothing had ever really come of it. However, behind Jewel's back, Dottie had joined a woman's battery group and it seemed to be really helping her. She had a great support group of ladies who were helping her to instill more confidence within herself. The more she attended the meetings, the better her agoraphobia became. It never completely went away, though. A friend from the group says that Dottie would still get anxious in social situations. She said that Dottie's purse was her security blanket. Her purse made her feel safe and grounded. She felt like she had a bit more control when she was holding her purse. Through the group... Dottie was able to receive resources that would help her during her life after divorce. Dottie had a P.O. box unknown to Jewel that she received mail to. She had opened a secret personal bank account. She had recently taken out a $5,000 cashier's check to be deposited into her account. Jewel says, She was a new Dottie. She had a secret life, a secret existence. I found it quite suspicious. (laughs) Shortly before Dottie's disappearance, Jewel lost his job in California and had found a new job in Salt Lake City, Utah. When he told Dottie, Dottie told him that she would not be joining him. Jewel tells us that was okay with him because he, quote, guesses that I didn't really want her to come with me either. Jewel says he claims to have seen Dottie last carrying her purse and an overnight bag heading towards the BART station, but... The next day he goes to pick her up and she isn't there. He says when he walks back to his car, he notices that her bright yellow VW bug is parked right next to his, which he had not noticed when he parked. He claims her purse was inside the car. But I'm confused. Didn't he say that he was supposed to pick her up after a few days? Why is he now saying that he went to pick her up the next day? Hmm. Tick tock. It's sketch o'clock. He says that he unlocks her car, moves the purse under the seat so no one will break into it, locks it back up, and writes a note to leave on top of the car. He claims that the note he wrote expressed his love for her and his desire for her to please come home. Wah, wah, wah. In a separate article, I read that he starts the letter out that way, but then continues to say, she needs to come home right this instant. And why is she acting this way? You said I could sleep with other women. He also says, the house is a mess, and you need to come home and clean it. And also, he needs her to sign some freaking paper so that he can sell their house before he moves to Salt Lake City without her. Wow, Jewel, you're like a modern-day Shakespeare. Anyway, Joel's love for Dottie certainly does seem conditional, doesn't it? Dottie's friend from the support group says that after a few days, Joel finally reaches out to inquire about Dottie's whereabouts. She asks Joel if he has reported Dottie's disappearance to the police, and he says no. She starts freaking out, and after Dottie has been missing for five days, law enforcement is finally brought in. But it wasn't a report filed by Joel Kaler, it wasn't even a report filed by her friend. It's a file reported by the BART system because Dottie's car had been parked in the parking lot for so long. Apparently, someone who mans the parking lot um, had noticed the car and all the notes on it and voted it in. Now, the only reason we think Dottie ever went to this train station is because Jewel told us that. And he is full of shisha. In recent years, Jewel has changed his story and now claims that he actually doesn't think he did take her to the BART station after all. In fact, now he claims that she actually drove herself. That's kind of a huge detail to F up Jewel. Also, if you're a real true crime lover, then you know that the truth doesn't change. So anytime a person of interest story changes along the line, especially in like a big way like this, you know that they're shady AF and they're not to be trusted. A current PI for the family says that there's, there isn't a doubt in her mind that Dottie never went to the BART station, and that this is all just a story concocted by Jewel Kaler to throw investigators off. Apparently, Jewel also made claims to family that he was so mad that Dottie left him because she didn't sign some paperwork before, making it impossible for him to sell his California home, so now he's forced to just rent it out. But apparently documents show that he had rented his property out to a family six days before Dottie went missing. Apparently six months before Dottie's disappearance, Jewel had proposed to a woman in Colorado. They'd even bought, they'd even like bought engagement rings. After learning about Dottie's disappearance on the news and seeing Jewel's face on the news, the woman immediately cut ties with Jewel and refused to answer any of his calls and letters. Smart lady. Jewel sent her a letter stating, I have made a Herculean effort to be with you. I love you so much. I would kill for you. Which I'm sure only sketched her out more. Poor choice of words, bud, because I think that's exactly why that Colorado woman doesn't want to talk to you. Jewel is still alive and he's still living in Salt Lake City. In fact, two weeks after Dottie disappeared, he moved to Salt Lake. However, he still owns the house that he and Dottie lived in and he rents it out. Some wonder if he has purposefully rented it out over the years so that it can't be renovated by the new owners. Apparently, shortly after Dottie's disappearance, Jewel made a patio in the backyard, supposedly because he thought it would be nice for his renters. But apparently someone claims that Dottie is buried underneath it, and even though investigators know about this claim, they don't have enough evidence to get a warrant to search it for themselves. Also, interesting to note that Jewel owns a mine two hours away from his and Dottie's California home. The status of the mine is that it is closed, basically making it illegal for anyone to enter it. Could Dottie be buried there? Or perhaps she's buried in Oregon on Jewel's 30 acres of property. Girl, it's Oregon, and everyone's murdered in Oregon. In 1988, an anonymous letter was received to the investigators of the case. The letter claims that Joel killed Dottie in their garage with a tire iron, and the letter even includes a map marked with a spot that the writer claimed Dottie was buried. This lead was investigated and went nowhere. DNA found that the person who licked the stamp was a male, but the person who licked the envelope was a female. There have been no matches to this day, although some speculate that it could have been a psychic. However, writing analysts were brought in to look at it and they found that the handwriting of the letter was oddly similar to Jewel's handwriting. Hmm, are you trying to throw investigators off your tail? In 1997, Jewel and Dottie's neighbor found a rusted meat cleaver with duct tape wrapped around the handle on their property. It had been hiding in an overgrown ivy plant that separated their property from Jewel and Dottie's. When the owner made this discovery, he immediately recalled a conversation that he had had with Jules a few weeks after Dottie's disappearance. He claims that one afternoon he had planned to cut down the hostile ivy. However, Jules ran out, stopping him before he could do it, telling him that it would be a bad idea to cut down the ivy because it could cause the fence to fall down. He now wonders if this was all a ploy by Jewel to keep the murder weapon hidden. So, like I said, Jewel apparently lives in Salt Lake City now, which is so close to where I live, so I'm officially creeped out, but in a wild turn of events, in 2004, Jewel tried running for office in Utah, but was forced to resign because of his seedy past and his involvement in this case, which... I'm trying to figure out if it's ballsy that he did that or just idiotic, but I must admit that he probably would have made for a good politician. I mean, let's face it, he's already pretty good at lying. <laughs> also, this has nothing to do with the case, but Joel has a Facebook account and he absolutely sucks at it. <laughs> Think like your great grandpa attempting to use Facebook and then times that by like one and a half million, but... While I was looking at it, this made me laugh out loud. He wrote in his status, like, you know how when you can write what you're feeling or like what you want to say, he wrote a personal message to his friend. So like his status reads, hey, Bob, how are you? Haven't seen you in a while. Blah, 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 blah. But isn't that hilarious? I don't know. It doesn't have anything to do with anything, but he's just really bad at technology. Okay, I'll end this case with one last quote from Crete Best Jewel. And I'm going to do it in his voice because I just think that it's hilarious. When asked about Dottie in the episode, Jewel says, quote, with eyes so bored, it looks like he's about to fall asleep, by the way. He says, it was hell living with Dottie. It was hell having her disappear the way that she did. And yet, uh, since I've gotten here and gotten settled with my new life and my new job and That whole problem, referring to Dottie, is behind me. Uh, things are really looking pretty good. Uh, TikTok, it's sketch o'clock. But seriously, Jewel, I'm sorry that your wife's disappearance is such an inconvenience to you. I hope y'all picked up on the fact that he's supposed to be talking about his missing and possibly deceased wife, and that whole quote was all about him, 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 and how everything is happening to him, and how everything is affecting him, and how great everything is now going for him. What a sketchy little weirdo. All right, that was Unsolved Mysteries Season 1, Episode 1. We did it, guys. Can you believe it? I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I thought it might be fun to sprinkle some of those in throughout the pod to see where the cases are now. And also because it's kind of fun to learn about things that might not have been included in the episode that can only be found after spiraling down the rabbit hole of true crime into the early morning hours. You know, when you know that you should go to sleep or else your day is going to suck tomorrow, but you really just need to know every inch of a publicly released Emmys report. Anyone? Anyone? Just me? Okay. Okay no problem. This is the level of dedication I have for the podcast and for you, my most beloved listeners. Please be sure to leave a review and to tell a friend today. That's seriously the best way that you can help me grow right now. Also, a common theme in these four cases was that of domestic violence, and I would be remiss if I did not inform you that if you find yourself in an abusive relationship and you need help getting out of it, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799 7233 They can provide you with local resources and help. Please know that you are loved and that you are not alone. You are strong and you will get through this. Again, that number is 1-800-799-7233. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved?